in some ways, startups now can be, they really can be anywhere. I know that there's the, if you're doing a tech startup, you go to Silicon Valley is the sort of uh, cliche, but that's actually not necessarily true. You can do this from there, all sorts of innovation hubs that have popped up all over the country. Welcome to the Food Startups Podcast. You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf. It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode number 111. Well, first off, I want to encourage listeners, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, to get the free packaging and design guide. It's a one-pager by Hungry Studio out of NYC. We had them on the show about uh, three or four months ago. And uh, yeah, the email list, I'm growing it and looking to provide exclusive content, including behind the scenes for people that have sold their companies to a large food conglomerate, food company, and all sorts of tips and tricks that I want to share. So please sign up for the email list on our website at foodstartupspodcast.com. Also, I want to shout out to a really, really cool food company, the Rogue Traders. Rogue Trader Foods, what do they do? They are out of Southern Oregon and Northern California. They supply duck eggs, lamb, They have just a really, really, really cool Instagram, which I'm linking to, but they've supported our show, left a review. I just love their Instagram, and it's cool to see them on their food startups journey, so please check them out. You can find the link on the episode page. Well, let's go into today's interview. This founder, she is incredibly impressive from my home state of Maryland in Silver Spring, where I was born. So she developed an online trading platform for organic and non-GMO grains that want to expand to specialty coffee. You just have to learn about this platform. It's a really innovative idea, and no one else is doing anything like this right now, but it's a chance to connect farmers and buyers and grain traders, et cetera, et cetera, and serve the movement of the organic, non-GMO, natural foods. So you'll learn a ton in this episode about their mission and how they're growing. Um, And I hope you enjoy the founder's story as well, because as I mentioned, I'm incredibly impressed by what she's done and where Mercaris is going. She is the founder and CEO of Mercaris. It's a market data service and trading platform for organic non-GMO, and other identity-preserved agricultural commodities. Okay, so a better way to put this, or I guess more layman's terms for people that aren't experts in trading, think of like a commodities exchange for healthy grains right now that have environmentally beneficial attributes. So they kind of connect, let's just say you're growing uh, organic corn. They'll connect you with buyers like Whole Foods, Michael Foods, Purdue Farms, other people that are actively using this. Let's say you have this grain They connect them through auctions and a trading platform. They also provide both buyers and sellers with really helpful data. We'll get into this in the episode, but the USDA has some data, but they take it to the next level, including import data. So prior to Mercaris, she spent five years at the Chicago Climate Exchange, also known as CCX, which was an electronic trading platform for spot futures and options contracts. 
for carbon, sulfur, and clean energy credits, I guess. She'll tell us more about that. In 2009, she was appointed by President Barack Obama. I guess we can still say that. He's still got a couple months left as a White House fellow where she advised members of the administration on environmental markets. She has also worked with coffee farmers in Honduras and commodity banks in LATAM on risk management and income diversification strategies. She was named by both Black Enterprise Magazine and Crane's Chicago Business Magazine as a 40 under 40 rising leader. She's also an Aspen Institute Cato Environmental Fellow and has served on the board of Net Impact, a membership organization of more than 12,000 MBA professionals committed to sustainability. She is also a resident fellow at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, which is a think tank in D.C. She's based right now out of Silver Spring, where I was born, another Maryland person on the show, which is great. She's received her MBA and MA, Master's in International Development from AU, American University, and the BA in Spanish from University of Kentucky. Well, she's doing a lot of stuff, as you can tell, and she's also a recent mother, which is incredible on top of all the stuff she's doing. As she mentioned before, it's like she's running two startups. Kelly James, thanks so much for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. Yeah. I mean, really, what a what an interesting bio. You, you've done a lot of stuff. It tends to happen that a lot of people in think tanks are can be more on the academic or government side, but you've kind of transferred over to the entrepreneur for-profit world. Yeah, I um, have tried a lot of things in life and have been both on the government side, on the not-for-profit side, and on the for-profit side. And it's more just a question at any given moment, given what you're trying to accomplish, what vehicle, you know, what's the best path to, to accomplishing those goals. And sometimes it's been government and sometimes it's been private sector. And currently it's creating a, a brand new company to, to create some products that have never been, never been in existence before. Right. And what stood out to me reading your bio, besides, like I mentioned, wow, she does a lot of stuff, but, but more, more than that, like, you know, you've, you've been in Latin America, you've been on like the very academic side, government side, private side, the trading side, inside politics. So you have a very wide perspective. So that can only be an advantage going into a startup where you're going to have to deal with a lot of these entities. Yeah, and because we're in agriculture and because we're in a particular type of agriculture, you find government involvement. And for us, the government creating standards that the market recognizes and accepts for what is, in fact, an organic commodity, the debate that's going on currently about what is non-GMO and should it or should it not be labeled for the consumer, these are all things in which the government has a a lot to say, and it it does impact um, how we run our business. But a lot of times, startups, the private sector, you don't traditionally maybe think of government except as maybe an impediment. But I think smart government can actually make entrepreneurship that much easier. And I'd like to add to that. So I was at an event, uh, I guess, two weeks ago in D.C. at a co-working space, and they had a, a forum on food. And a lot of people like to say, oh, like we're like this D.C. startup. Like, we don't like talking about politics. And there's kind of a – and for good reason, there is a negative connotation towards some types of politics. I mean, there is dirty politics and lobbying and special interest stuff. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, uh, a lot of us who have startups that are environmentally focused or some type of social impact, some type of net impact, they say, you know, listen, you know, we want to have a big impact. And ironically, to have a big impact, you kind of have to get involved with politics. So it kind of comes uh, full circle. And I, I found that out this summer working, working in produce. 
and found it very interesting because I didn't imagine a year ago I'd be hmm. talking to the USDA and APHIS trying to get these these fruits approved for the sure. U.S. market. Sure. So, Kelly, let's uh, let's start with you. Even before all this stuff I just read about you, what was your childhood like? Uh, so I had a, I had a lovely childhood. I was uh, I was born into a, a military family. My dad was in the army, so I'm your typical army brat. We moved all over the place, and I have friends everywhere. Being an army brat, I think, makes you adaptable and all sorts sorts of skills that you can use later on in life. So I, I had you know I had, I had a really nice childhood. That's awesome. And uh, tell me, what was uh, your favorite place that you that you lived? Oh, man, I'm going to give you another sort of typical response, which is, you know, the Army community is such a, t- a tight, uh, close-knit community that we found that you know, everywhere we went, there were there were great people that we met. And I don't, you know, I, I don't say this ironically, I really don't have a favorite place. The, the longest place I lived, we lived was Fort Bliss, Texas, and that was uh, almost... Uh, just under seven years, or just at seven years, and so that's that. To this day, that's the record of longest place I've lived anywhere. <laughs> and what part of Texas is that in? Uh, El Paso. El Paso, cool. Okay, right near the far, far west is as far west as you can get in in Texas is where you find El Paso and, and Fort Bliss. Cool. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a, it's quite a shame what's going on in Mexico right now because I, I remember seeing these stats where El Paso actually has a very like safe crime rate for. The, you know, comparing the size of the city to other U.S. cities, mm. but it's ironically on the other side of the border from Ciudad Juarez. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've made that drive. I used to live in Houston, and uh, I tend all the way west. And so, okay, so college, international development. So you always knew you wanted to, I guess, travel or kind of be involved some way with the world outside of the United States. Yeah, actually, it's funny. I went to University of Kentucky kind of because <laughs> I, I used to. So I used to ride horses um, professionally, and, and that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to become the first African American uh, rider to make it to the Olympics, and you know, my entire life was consumed. A lot of the army bases that we were at had stables, horse stables, from back when the cavalry was four-legged instead of armored. So it was something I could do as I grew up, and, and I grew to love it. And so I went to University of Kentucky, not for the academics or the basketball, but uh, because it was uh, horse country. And uh, along the way, I, I started working professionally for a trainer and then got injured and so had to figure out what's my plan B. Like, all right, I'm not going to do horses for the rest of my life as a professional anyway, so what else shall I do? And I had majored in Spanish as well, undergrad, uh, really just enjoyed learning languages. And so international development was kind of a... A next step along the way, I'd worked for a couple of community organizations where people had really great ideas, but not really great management skills. So I kind of combined an MBA with an international development uh, degree, thinking that I could do something useful, but not not sure what that useful thing was. (laughs) And did this injury happen uh, in competition? It did. It did. I was riding a client's horse just after I'd graduated from UK, got my dream job with an Olympic rider was uh, on the road at a competition riding a, a client's horse, and the horse flipped over on me, and I broke my back. And it was, uh, it was a six-month healing process. I had surgery, I had physical therapy, and then I went back to riding uh, because apparently I don't learn. Um, but it wasn't the same, and I kind of knew I wouldn't get back to the same level I was at, so I, I kind of started winding down my, my very short-lived professional riding career and, and looking for the next step. Wow, okay. Gosh, I can't even imagine. That's... um. So interesting. So you really just had a pivot right there in your life. And so you go out yeah. to D.C. to American University. That's right. 
That's right. I love the American University's um, sort of practical approach to, to international development. I love that I can combine the development with the, the MBA and um, and hey, and, and hey, I got in there. So <laughs> the combination. I love DC as a as a town. It's a nice place. Oh yeah, DC is really cool, and it's, uh, it's yeah. as you probably know, it's changed a lot over the last uh, ten years. I also, you know, I was mentioning this, and I'd like to see your opinion here, Kelly. So I at this event, what I realized is, you know, the majority of people that live in DC, you know, they do work for the government, right? So it's not a big entrepreneur city compared to let's say San Francisco or Austin or New York. But the good thing is there's a pretty high income bracket there, meaning that if you want to start a, a food business or any type of startup there, there's a, a good amount of support from people living there. You know, they have money. Yeah, I mean, D.C. in some ways, like, in some ways startups now can be, they really can be anywhere. I know that there's the, if you're doing a tech startup, you go to Silicon Valley is the sort of uh, cliche, but that's actually not necessarily true. You can do this from there, all sorts of innovation hubs that have popped up all over the country. And for me, my husband works in at the Department of Labor here in, in D.C., so there was his job to consider. And for uh, the business that we started, there's a lot of, there's actually quite a bit of organic agriculture in the mid-Atlantic. So we have quite a few customers and stakeholders in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia. One of our first grain auctions was actually a farmer in Maryland. So we have a, a, an office here in Silver Spring, D.C. area. We've got an office in Chicago, and we've got one in Minneapolis. And really, it just enables us to get to our clients that much better. And, and again, with technology, we're Skyping, we're on the, we're on the phone, we're emailing. The trading itself happens online. So really, anywhere anyone has an internet connection, you can you can be an entrepreneur. That's true. Agreed. I, I'd say, I guess my point was more like, it's easier to stand out. And I'll, I'll say, if you have like a food or like snack brand, um, you want to get concentration in a city. In a place like New York, where there's so many, it's very cutthroat. And if you go to a place like maybe like Jacksonville, and you're doing some like an organic snack, they may not have uh. like the, um, the purchasing power, but 100% right. I mean, I'm talking to you from Bogota, but I... I travel a lot and mm -hmm. there is some in-person stuff that I have to do, but a lot of the time I can really be anywhere because people don't necessarily need to see you face-to-face -face all the time. My first question is, you know, we briefly touched on this already and that's, you were advising the Obama administration and as we know, election going on, blah, 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 politics can be very opaque. We don't know exactly what's going on. So you, you had more of an inside look working there any takeaways from from uh, that part of your professional career? Yeah, I would just say that um, <laughs> politics and government are two very different things. That was one of the big takeaways. You know, every day we have a government apparatus that's largely invisible, different from the the sort of headline grabbing news of you know who said what or you know what sort of craziness went on that that can often be politics. You know, I came away with a, sort of a respect for and, and, you know, some legitimate frustrations with our governance process. So that, even more than politics, I think good governance is a really hard thing and, and can be really hidden to the average, you know, person. So if I'm reading this right, and I think this probably happens a lot, a lot of great governance, whether it's a mayor or secretary of whatever, um, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of times these benefits they, you may not see them for a number of years. It could be an infrastructure, health, whatever, um, and they may go unseen, but they can have a huge impact. You may not ever know about it. Right. Or if something goes wrong, then you see the headlines. 
but uh, it's incredibly important, and it's important to all of our quality of lives and the way that we can all do business. Many startups are built on the back of infrastructure that was created you know, by our government and didn't necessarily grab a lot of attention when it when it happened. That's true. I would say that politics with the negative connotation, we tend to take a lot of things from the government for granted. And yeah, there's tons of problems, as you mentioned. And also, I guess the news sometimes skewed a little bit more towards the negative, but there's a lot of amazing things that the government has to offer. And that kind of moves me into the next part. I live mostly in Colombia. You spent time in Honduras. And when you see the governments there, I think anyone that spends significant time in Latin America can appreciate the U.S. government yeah. a little more, and in, in, at least in the way it's it's managed. And uh, so you worked with coffee farmers and commodity banks. What did you learn down there? What was your experience like in, in Honduras? Yeah, so it was really incredible. First of all, it was life-changing because it was the first time I had worked with farmers directly, and it was the first, it was kind of my introduction to commodities markets. So this was more than 10 years ago, coffee prices were super low, and I was working with it. It was a foundation that was trying to help coffee growers either diversify or you know, get into higher quality coffee. At the time, a lot of the farmers there were growing very low quality coffee that was getting the absolute bare minimum price on the world market. Or these were coffee farmers that hadn't hedged, weren't able to manage their risk. So again, they just kind of rode the markets down. And you could see the effect at the ground level. I mean, high levels of poverty, kids not being able to afford to go to school. It was a really tough situation. We, were, we, were, we had a little bit of money to try and help them try and you know, change, their, to change the course of their economic future. That's awesome. It sounds like a great experience. But like you mentioned, I mean, it, coffee has definitely improved. It's still an, an uphill battle. This kind of brings us into commodities, right? Because like I think in 2001, Vietnam flooded the coffee market and a lot of farmers, you know, they're susceptible to things that they can't control or they're only, I guess, on the supply side unless they're buying futures to hedge against that. But one, that's that's pretty complicated stuff. I do know people in Colombia that do that, especially if you're running your own coffee farm, to have time to learn, follow, get set up and buy futures, uh, not really uh, an easy thing to do. Yeah, well, and, and plus, you know, futures markets can manage risk. They can't eliminate risk. And so right. if the market just goes down and stays down, you can't, futures are not going to allow you to then, you know, somehow get a, a higher price than the market um, is paying the way. The way we approach that with the farmers in Honduras is, can you grow a higher quality coffee? It's still, a, you know, the definition of commodity is that it's still undifferentiated. But it's, you know, if it carries an organic label, if it carries a, a shade-grown label, if it's got a, a higher quality taste profile, then it can command a higher price on the market. Right. And I still want coffee to go. I, I don't think there's any reason why coffee can't go the same route as one, you know, these really great high-end coffees and, and connoisseurs, why not produce a coffee that some high-level market could pay, you know, $50 a bag for because it's it's that good. And that would be a great way to incentivize uh, these coffee farms. That's right. Actually, another Maryland uh, person that was on the show, buddy of mine, Carl from Direct Origin Trading, he's working on that. So he brings in coffee from Colombia and he, he directly connects the, the farmer and kind of basically has the farmer sell to the coffee roaster. So it's like a pretty transparent thing and it, it's pretty cool for the farmer's experience as well as the uh, the roaster's experience. But again, I'm a coffee lover and I, I can't wait to see the specialty coffee market grow and grab more percentage of the industry. Yeah, it's, all, it's doing very well. It's already, what, up over 10%. So. Oh, wow, I, I didn't know that. I wanna get into Mercaris because um, you know this is your startup that you're working on now. 
So my first question is, why do you think this didn't exist when you founded this a couple of years ago? Well, I think a, a couple things. It didn't exist because organics is fairly new. Organic farming is very old, actually. It was the, like the original farming was organic before we had all these uh, chemical inputs. But organic as defined by governments, not just the U.S. government, but other governments um, around the world, is, is relatively new. We've only had an organic standard in this country for uh, just under 15 years. And so the structures that are in place to support that market were not necessarily there. So that's, that's one reason. The other is it is still very small. I mean, it grabs a lot of headlines and it's growing very fast. But um, in terms of acreage, it's less than 2% of all farm acreage in the U.S. is organic. And if you look at the total food market, you know, you're talking less, it varies by category, dairy versus fruits, vegetables versus animal proteins, but it, it's generally less than 15, uh, 10, 15% of the market, depending on the category, it can even be lower. So, so it's a niche market, but it's, it's, it's very dynamic. And where do you get most of your data from? Uh, so a combination, the bulk of our data, the stuff that we think is really valuable to customers, we create ourselves. So we run electronic surveys to, to pull information from all sorts of actors in the market and, and get their numbers for what they're paying, volumes, locations of, of transactions, that sort of thing. And then we run our trading platform, which allows our customers, of course, to buy and sell. But every time they do, that's information that we can feed into our reports. So those are kind of our two homegrown data sets that we have. And then as a third manner of collecting data, we do use government reports when they're available. So import uh, information that tends to be the most reliable source tends to be government. And then there's a, a few other sort of smaller reports that the government does produce that we use and, and just try to, to make it accessible and relevant to our to our subscribers. Wow. So you're working with a lot of different sets of data and compiling that all together into some smart data. And um, again, listeners, I know this is, it's a very new, interesting concept, but Makaris, again, I'll just repeat, this episode can be found at foodstartupspodcast.com slash M-E-R-C-A-R-I-S. But it's a platform for these organic grains like uh, corn and, and soy, uh, also non-GMO, where farmers can get their commodity on there and buyers can connect as well. So my next question is, how do you attract farmers onto your exchange? Yeah, so actually, let me go back just a minute and just because I don't think I ever did say the, the mission of Mercaris is you know market data, market information, and then online trading, buying and selling for commodities that are organic or non-GMO or have some other what we call identity preservation. And that's really anyone along the supply chain. Oh, hold on for one second. Uh, Kelly, can you uh, define identity uh, preservation? Oh, sure. Identity preservation is something, some trait or characteristic that you, usually the consumer or maybe the manufacturer, wants, wants to keep separate from the larger supply chain. So let's say, for example... Uh, taking organic as an example, if the consumer is valuing organic as a production as a label, well, when you harvest your organic corn, you can't just mix it in with all the other corn coming in from farms that are not organic. It's got to stay separate all the way through. That separation makes it behave very differently from the larger market. So like where you go to get organic corn, you can't just go to maybe your local supplier that you're used to going for everything else. What does organic corn cost? It's got a different supply and demand profile, so the price behaves differently. Where is it processed? All these things are slightly different than if you were just going to do plain old conventional corn. So that's the identity. And a lot of the organic corn comes from Romania, at least in one of the sample reports I saw on your website. Yeah, we actually, because the demand, the consumer demand has grown so quickly, 
we have not been able to produce enough organic corn in this country to meet the demand. It takes three years to transition. So if I, as a farmer today, decide I want to grow organic, I actually won't be able to receive the organic transition label for three years. So you have a situation where the supply is, and for various reasons, the supply has not kept pace with demand. We've filled that supply by by turning to uh, markets overseas. So I uh, interrupt you oh. there, but I, I just wanted to yeah. uh, mention no, that. No and, uh, worries. So attracting farmers. So let's go to attracting farmers. Mm-hmm. And our customers are along the entire supply chain. So we have farmers, we have food processors, we've got grain mills and elevators, we have you know vertically integrated food companies. And we even have a retailer or two uh, there. We don't have a lot of just consumers because the consumers are buying a, a packaged product. And while they might kind of look at the price every day at their, you know, every week at their grocery store, our market is really intended for businesses, small and large, that are handling those, those commodities and ingredients. Yeah, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, this is a very naive question, but let's just say I, um, someone was able to determine, okay, I think organic wheat is going to like double in price in six months. Could someone who has some money go on there and like buy some wheat, store it somewhere and then try to like resell it next year? (laughs) They could. Um, So just to be clear, our trading platform is what we call a cash marketer for physical trading. That means if I sell you some corn, Matt, the corn shows up at your door. It's not a piece of paper. It's it's a piece of paper, but it's attached to an actual truckload of, of corn or wheat. And that's different from what you might hear about at the Chicago Market Exchange or the old Chicago Board of Trade where people were trading futures, which were essentially pieces of paper electronically for the value of underlying commodities that they were never going to use themselves. So that was pure. Sometimes it was speculators who were, who were trading. Mercaris is different. And then like I said, it's physical trading. So uh, a truckload of wheat is sold and, and bought and, and, and shows up at someone's doorstep. So you can do that. You could hold some wheat and hope that the price doubles, and then you'd have this sort of risk. If it doesn't double, then you're stuck with wheat that was actually declined in value. And then don't forget that when you're storing a physical commodity, you have all the expense of storing it, making sure that you know bugs don't get to it, and that you know it's insured, and you know fire doesn't get to it, that sort of thing. And you can't, of course, that money's tied up. If you've spent money on wheat and you're holding it for a full year or year and a half or what have you, that's money that you can't spend on other things because it's you know you haven't sold the wheat yet. It's, it's tied up in okay, the wheat. Okay, so you you've definitely uh, brought me onto the risks of, uh, of maybe not doing this or storing it. Uh, Michael's farm. <laughs> yeah, don't don't think. think. <laughs> Think very carefully. Uh, that's fine. But yeah, it's, it's cool to know that. And okay, we're not expert traders here. So in layman's terms, why are there no futures contracts, which listeners, I'll repeat, that means, you know, a lot of other commodity exchange and you can buy futures on oil, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You don't actually have to store the oil here. You buy it, you have to physically receive it like in a lot of traditional markets. So why does Mercaris not use futures contracts? Well, um, we actually did research the possibility, and we thought, well, this market is so new and so small that markets have to be a certain size before futures contracts are a, a viable solution. And organics is just, at this point, is just too small. One day, maybe, five years, ten years down the road, who, who can tell, uh, it might actually work. So just from a mechanics point of view, the market has to be a certain size before it can support futures. The other thing is it's got to have some other key indicators, volatility and very fragmented. And certainly organics is volatile and fragmented, but the key thing is it's, not, it's just not big enough yet. Gotcha. Okay, so it needs to get bigger. Yeah, so I had um, an author of uh, Natural Profits who was like the VP, or he's like the 
head of marketing at, at Whole Foods and then at Sprouts, and he's friends with like the, the founder of Whole Foods, and he's been in this for a long time, and he tells a story. It's like, uh, you know, this started with the baby boomers in the 70s, and even today, just the natural food space is only 5% of the U.S. market, which is still a lot. I mean, 5% of the U.S., that's a lot of spending power, billions, but it's got a, a long ways to go. Okay, so great answer there. And, and so I guess if I'm a farmer, and you mentioned, you know, going out to visit farmers in, in, in Maryland, let's just say I have organic corn in Maryland on the Eastern Shore, I could contact you because why would I, um, I, I guess what would be my alternative? Why would I want to sell it through uh, Mercaris? Yeah, so uh, earlier what you said about why a business like this hasn't existed before is, is true. Mercaris is a, a new type of concept, but people have been doing business in this in organics for a long time. They do it the old-fashioned way. They pick up the phone and they call around to a bunch of people trying to find someone to buy or sell uh, or to find out what's going on. There's a sort of coffee shop network of figuring out what's going on in the market. And that's what the farmers are doing today. And so we say, you know what, you have some relationships with buyers that you value that have worked for you for years. Keep those relationships, but this is a, a faster way and a way of fostering some competition for your, you know, your, your hard-earned, the, the corn that you worked so hard to grow. So you can put this online and buyers can come to you and they can compete against each other and you can form some new relationships with buyers. The other thing we do is we have a a back-end, a technology back-end that, that transfers money. So instead of the grower having to maintain all that paperwork, hope that they're paid in 30 days or 60 days, or does the buyer have good credit, they don't know. Our system means that we can push money electronically from the buyer to the seller upon delivery, and buyers can wait as little as three to four business days to get their money. Okay. Great answer. I, I love the, the risk protection there. I think about that farmers are, it's already so hard just with the weather, I mean, we just went through El Nino um, that affected us as well. So at least making sure that you can get paid uh, with this escrow server sounds fantastic. And okay, two last things. I know we're running out of time here. Okay, one, uh, explain a reverse auction and uh, two, why use reverse auctions? So in general, our markets are auctions. The reason is, I mentioned these markets are really small. So imagine a, an online auction where someone you've got something to sell today. You know, it's Tuesday, and there just doesn't happen to be a buyer for another you know three weeks. So you get frustrated and you go away because who knows when the next person is going to come along the platform. So auctions are good because they're held in fixed time frames. So everyone knows that you know next Wednesday from eight to noon you can show up and bid, and it tends to you know thicken up the market and, and get better participation. Um, now there's different types of auctions, and we have different types of auctions according to what the buyers or sellers are trying to accomplish. So a standard auction is what we just described: a farmer's got something to sell, or somebody has something to sell. It's one seller, many buyers, and that's usually what people think of when you first say auction. The reverse auction is one buyer, many sellers. You might also think of it as an RFP, uh, for those of you that are in government listening in. And so the buyer says, let's say a... Request for services proposal. Yeah, exactly. The buyer, let's say a food company, a food processor says, we are looking for X amount of organic corn to put into a corn chip. Here are all the specifications. We need this much. It needs to be this quality delivered on this day. And then suppliers, farmers or co-ops or grain elevators can see that and compete against each other to win that business. So they'll put in what are called offers. So that's a reverse auction. Reverse auction, one buyer, many sellers. Standard auction, one seller, many buyers. Great, okay, great explanation. Now finishing off here, challenges going forward. What challenges do you see from Mercaris and where do you expect to be, I don't know, four to five years from now? 
Uh, so I'll start with the last part first. I, you know, we want to be the most sophisticated, data-rich source of information and liquid trading for, for anyone in the business. And so to do that, the, the challenge is we need, we need to grow. We need to cover an increasing number of commodities and ingredients accurately and in a timely manner. Right now we cover uh, organic corn, wheat, soybeans, non-GMO corn, and non-GMO soybeans, and then we offer auctions. Uh, we just started covering organic soybean meal and oil, organic oats. So we need to, there's a whole world of uh, other organic commodities out there. There's other identity-preserved commodities, things like country of origin coffee, for example. So we have a lot of growing that we can do and, and will do in the next four to five years. And that also creates you know, some challenges. How do you do it well? How do you make sure you're not, you are creating a, a profitable business? How do you serve both the smallest family farm as well as you know, the large corporate food company? So those are all challenges that we'll be addressing. Wow, that's amazing. And maybe it's on like, I don't know, virgin organic coconut oil, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's so many. And we have had to make some choices. We've had people call, for example, we had a call and someone said, oh, what about covering, you know, organic cinnamon or, or, or cardamom? Th- those are perfectly legitimate questions, but those markets are so tiny, they're probably not the first markets we'll go after. We'll go after some of the larger grains and oil seeds and, you know, maybe even we haven't gotten into fruits and vegetables yet, but um, before we get into some of the really, really tiny esoteric stuff that's probably only got a handful of people that um, that are, are impacted. All right. Well, organic cardamom growers, if you're listening, stay patient. It will come one day. Uh, and you're going to have to let me know if you get into fruits and vegetables. Uh, I'd be really interested in that. But, uh, okay. but uh, Kelly, I learned a lot. This was really fun speaking with you. Um, I uh, would like to know if listeners want to reach out to you, especially someone that, I don't know, is is knows someone in this industry that may want to be part of your exchange, how can they find you? Yeah, so the best way is to go to our website, which is um, mercaris.com, M-E-R-C-A-R-I-S.com, and you'll find a whole lot of information, some sample reports you can download. You can start a free account. And then our contact information, you can always reach us by phone at um, 312-423-1877. And you can also email us at info at Mercaris.com. All right, Kelly. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and I hope to have you back in the future, especially when you have uh, some of these new uh, new ingredients in your exchange. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate the, the chance to talk with you this morning. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com.